As we consider God's word from Galatians chapter 5 this morning, I want you to simply note in our reading that we are talking about loving our neighbor as ourselves. Um, Serving in the love of Christ is in very much in keeping with the theme of Galatians chapter 5. It's starting here, the opening part of this chapter in Galatians 5. You'll see it over the next couple of weeks as we talk about what it means to walk by the Spirit. Next week, to walk in keeping with the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit. And then in two weeks, talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And what you're beginning to see is that the Apostle Paul, in this letter of Galatians, is unpacking for us now not merely the structure of the gospel, its truth, But he's also now showing us the power of the gospel as animated and expressed through the Spirit working in us. And that's where he's calling us today. And the focus is on freedom. The focus is on freedom that in many ways is the very theme of the book of Galatians. Galatians 5.1 could be a summary of the entirety of what the Apostle Paul is calling the church at Galatia 2. So as we focus on this text, Galatians 5.1-15, have your... Your eyes and ears focused in on the love and the freedom that flows out of the gospel into a transformed life. Let's look together at Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we know that your word stands forever. We know that we can trust it. We know that in all of its teaching and parts, it is infallible, unbreakable, and without error. And yet, Lord, our ability to access this truth 
with knowledge, with understanding, with wisdom is something we are incapable of apart from your Spirit. But you have given us your Spirit. He dwells within us by faith. And so we would ask, as we have read your word and now anticipate its proclamation, that you would, through that Spirit who indwells, that you would read this word with him. You would communicate this word through him. That you would forge a transformation by this word through him in our hearts. We rely upon you. And so come and show yourself sufficient in all things as we hand over our hearts to you and this word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an African-American pastor who I can remember. I can just see him right now even as I think about him in my mind's eye. Grew up not too far down the street from his missionary Baptist church. We and our local congregation that I grew up in would partner with this church from time to time on a number of different mission initiatives. We sometimes would worship together usually on some kind of fifth Sunday special service sort of thing, and um, one service particularly, I got a chance to spend some time with that pastor. He said something to me, because we were talking about the gospel. There was a group of us that were there. He said something to me that stuck with me. He says, he says believing the gospel... is a little bit like the experience of my forefathers before and after the Emancipation Proclamation. He said there is a, there's a similarity that's here. He said they were slaves. They didn't have standing as citizens of the United States of America, but... When, in the 1860s, Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation with a variety of motives, mind you, as he gave it, some slaves began to experience freedom. And then more and more slaves, as that executive order was carried out, began to experience freedom, till finally, in the end, nationally, all slaves were freed. And begin to experience freedom. He says, but years following it, my grandfather, this is him speaking, would say, but still the slavery is not merely an external institution. There's a slavery that over the years is conditioned formatively within you. So much so that as an African American in the South, if a rich and powerful white man were to say something to you, regardless of whether he had the authority to or not, something inside of you just wanted to do it. You almost went back to the slavery that really was no more. But it was still really present within you. He said, believing the gospel's a little bit like that. There's a freedom that you've been given in Christ, but there's... 
a lingering slavery from the past fallen human nature that's still present within you and there's a tendency towards it. And the Apostle Paul, here in the context of Galatians chapter 5, is saying, you've got to learn how to stand firm in that freedom. That old African-American pastor said, it's a fight to stay free. In a very real sense, it is a fight to stay free. The Galatian church is having to experience that. Because where they are, as the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, is not at a place of freedom. And the Apostle Paul is welcoming them into and inviting them back to the gospel that they originally embraced. A gospel that is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That our standing with God comes through Christ and his person and work alone. That we receive it by faith. And there is nothing that we can do to earn it. At the point the Apostle Paul is writing Galatians 5, false teachers have gotten in to the community there in Galatia. And they have begun to add in, as he mentions here, circumcision. We've spoken of this. This entrance right into acceptability within the covenant community. You knew you were in if you were circumcised. You were a part. And he's saying here in this context that Christ has transformed that. Christ has fulfilled circumcision and all that it pointed to a promised seed that would come forth from Abraham who through the shedding of blood would remove from us sin and the fleshliness of our human persons and would give to us a standing, a full acceptance in the presence of God. That picture was fulfilled in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the church at Galatia is beginning to doubt that. And they're falling back into slavery. The Apostle Paul, in this context, wants to go back to the fundamentals of the faith and say, here is the freedom that you have been given in Christ. Don't forget it. Here are the slaveries that you're going to be tempted to. Learn how to fight them. Learn how to fight them. So that you can stand firm. In the freedom that you have been given in Christ. As we look at this text together, we want to consider it in just those ways. We want to consider the freedom that has been won for us in Christ. We want to consider the slaveries that we are often tempted by, two in particular, the Apostle Paul is addressing. And we want to look thirdly at how it is we fight against that slavery in order to live into and experience the freedom that Christ has purchased for us by his blood. I want to just look with you at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5, simply so you can see, as it were, almost the outline of those three points, because I believe this verse summarizes, in many ways, the entirety of this chapter. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom you have been set free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
There's three statements that the Apostle Paul is giving us there. He's first giving us a statement of fact. You have been set free. Church of Galatia, you are free. You are free because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to say that raises a question. What is it that you're freed from? What were you enslaved to? In context, throughout the book of Galatians, there's multiple allusions that the Apostle Paul gives to the bondage or the yoke of slavery that's described here. But the center point that he's focusing on here in Galatians 5 is the law. You were enslaved to the law, but the Lord Jesus Christ has come and set you free. You're no longer enslaved to the law. You're not under its condemnation and its guilt. Jesus has experienced that for you in full measure on the cross. And he rose again on the third day from the grave. He has been accepted by the Father, his sacrifice, as he stands at the right hand, living to make intercession for you. There is victory and vindication. And because of that, you stand in the freedom that Christ has. It has been charged to, it has been imputed to you. And so the law doesn't have anything on you anymore. You have been set free. Now, for what purpose have you been set free? That's the second statement. You have been set free for freedom. The very purpose of your being set free is to experience and to live into the freedom that has set you free. As he says it here, to stand firm in it. So there is a statement of fact. You've been set free, but there's a statement of purpose. For what reason were you set free? For freedom, you were set free. That's what he desires for you. So what do we do about that? Stand firm. That's the third statement. Statement of response, a command. If you're going to experience the freedom that you have been set free for, you're going to have to stand firm and resist any tendency to go back to a yoke of slavery, and you will be tempted to. Here's how I want you to fight it. In a nutshell, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in these 15 verses. Now, I'd love to be able to unpack them in great detail with you. We'll be only looking at a kind of high level through some of the themes here. But I hope a very practical level that will help us know what does it mean to truly be free in Christ. What is that language, that terminology? What's it filled out to be? How is it described? How do we know if we're living into it or not? And so we want to start by looking here at these two different temptations to slavery. This freedom is what we're being called to. What are the two slaveries that we have a tendency Towards The first is this. It's a slavery of turning back to the law. It's the temptation to turn back to the law. Look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it there in verse 2. He says, The false teachers are seeking to steal your freedom by talking you into accepting circumcision. Now in this passage, accepting circumcision essentially means going back to and being under the stricture of the Old Testament ceremonial law. He's saying these teachers of the law have come and they're seeking to add in some works to the gospel that you have braced, a gospel that was only by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. They're seeking to add a work, circumcision, this sign and seal of acceptability both with God and with the covenant community. 
He says, resist that. But if you accept it, here's what I want you to know. You're playing into the contradiction of the truth of these false teachers. And it will be a spiritual poison, verse 7, that will leaven the whole church. And their condemnation is certain, he says, verse 10. And what actually happens if you play into their hand is you're severed from Christ. You are... You have no advantage in Jesus. He actually uses the language that you've fallen away from grace. Now, as the Apostle Paul says that, he doesn't mean to indicate that they lost their salvation or that they were never saved. The Apostle Paul means that you're operating outside of the realm of grace. You've fallen away from the realm of grace. You're walking in the realm of the law, in the works righteousness of the false teachers. By doing that, you're nullifying all of the advantages that came with, came with Christ. You're undermining the reality of the gospel of justification by faith alone. You are leaning upon yourself and your own abilities to save yourself or sanctify yourself or garner favor and grace from the Lord rather than looking only to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you subvert the gospel. You actually undermine its very confidence and comfort and joy. He says, I want you to remember what Jesus did. Jesus set you free from the law by perfectly obeying the law on your behalf. He wants you to to pause and simply reflect on that. Jesus has perfectly obeyed the law on your behalf. All of his credentials... His resume, as it were, is in the filing cabinet of your heart. As it gets pulled out, you see all of the perfections that is Jesus. And all of those perfections put in the filing cabinet of of your heart. Meaning you own, as it were, you possess. All has been credited to you, the accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need the addition of a circumcision To add in any acceptance before God and for man. For you have it fully already in Christ. On top of this, Jesus has paid the penalty for those sins and removed your condemnation and the fear of death because he rose from the grave. He right now stands at the right hand of the Father and he's actually interceding for you. And he is making all of his and yours enemies a footstool for his feet. And one day he's going to return and fully establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth and you will be made perfect, righteous. And that which is right now credited to you will be fully possessed by you when you see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his perfections in the heavenly places. That's the advantage you already have in Christ. So why is it that circumcision would be important to add in? What does it give you that Christ doesn't already Give you is the question that the Apostle Paul is is raising for the church in Galatia. And he wants them to know that, listen, if you wind up opting for the law and the realm of the law and obedience over and against the realm of grace, then you find yourselves in an insecure, anxious ridden, constantly on the hamster wheel of the approval until you're utterly exhausting yourself, never quite sure if you've done enough. Or you can find full acceptance in Christ alone, who has fulfilled everything that is required for you to be brought into the heavenly places. 
So he says, you're going to be tempted to do this. Why are you going to be tempted to do this? Because man is always tempted to measure his righteousness through his own efforts. We're always tempted in that way. It's, it's how we often walk through life comparing ourselves with others. You know, I don't do everything right, but at least I'm not her. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I, I do the best I can with the things that have been given to me, but I, I'm certainly not like them. When I, when I look over the course of my life, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. These are the kind of things that we are constantly tempted towards, constantly measuring and monitoring in our own life. As you walk through life, there's fears and anxieties that often come along with that. That's a law-based works righteousness structure that you're freed from, but isn't it still there? Even though the emancipation proclamation of the gospel has been given... And you have received it by faith. Don't you have a tendency to go back? Can you imagine if you were under a teaching ministry like the church at Galatia that was encouraging that and inducing it? Right? It only takes, doesn't it? You've been in this, that little group that, you know, has a method for everything. So that life can be perfectly scripted or packaged in a cookie cutter fashion if you just tick all the boxes and you find yourself in that group. And at first you really like it because it's handy, shortcuts to everything. And after a while you're burdened by it because you realize you can't keep up. And then you, don't re- then you realize it doesn't all work. And then you know you're sold a bill of goods. And then it sours. He says, you're going to be tempted towards measuring your righteousness through your own energies and efforts. Don't do it. You forfeit everything that Christ offers for you when it happens. He says, but there's a second thing, a second slavery. And that is the using of your freedom as an excuse for sin. There's the turning back to the law to become, as it were, re-enslaved. Or there's a turning beyond using the law or using grace as an excuse for sin. Where do you see this? Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh. That word opportunity is actually a military word. It's a word that means a base of operations or a place from which you might run an offensive. Paul is saying don't allow the freedoms that have been given to you, the fruit of the gospel to become a place where you're operating in sin, a base of operations for sin, for for licentiousness. You have now been granted so much freedom that it would be easy to begin to turn that freedom into a wickedness by abusing that freedom and saying to yourself in your own heart, well, if God loves me, then fully accepted in Christ, and there's nothing good I could do to earn his favor, and there's nothing bad, ultimately, that I could do to lose his favor. Why not sin so that grace may abound? Bring it on. He says, be careful of using your freedom as an opportunity, a base of operations, so that the flesh could be satisfied. He says, that in of itself is actually nothing more than a new slavery, Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 8. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now you know it experientially. 
And you probably find yourself bouncing between these two. Oh, I need to really tighten up. I need to keep all of the commands. I need to do everything just right. And then later, feeling kind of stuffy, stodgy, mean, angry. I need to loosen up. I, I, need, to, I need to loosen up. There's more freedom than this in Christ. More, there's, there's, there's more latitude. There's more elasticity to the way that I need to be living. Oh, I'm getting a little too loose. I need to tighten things up and uh, need to get right. That's what we do. We, in a sense, bounce between slaveries rather than standing firm in the gospel, in the freedom of the gospel. We're bouncing between one slavery to another, and the other looks like freedom in the moment when you're in the opposite slavery. When you're in the slavery of the legalism, of the moral righteousness, of the working your way into favor and blessing kind of stance, you look over here at the people who are just living any old way they want to live. And you say, that just looks awesome. I think I'm going to go do that for a while. And then you know what you do. You give in to a little bit of that sin. You allow it to become an opportunity for the flesh. And you know what sin is? Well, it's not just a transgression. It's a power. The more you give in to it, the more it takes over. Before you know it, that desire to sin becomes a Need to sin becomes a demand for the sin. And before you know it, you're caught in a snare. That's the language of the Apostle Paul. You're caught in a trap. All of a sudden, you're not sinning. The sin has got you. And now all of a sudden, you're in another slavery, a different form. But it all feels the same in the end. A slavery according to the law and works righteousness. A slavery in irreligious moral debauchery. Whatever it is. It ultimately expresses itself in slavery. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, these are the two temptations that are going to constantly come to you. And I want to tell you, you've got to stand firm and not turn again to a yoke of slavery. So the question really is then, if, if your, does your experience in life feel a little bit like that? If it does, then how do we stand firm? I think that's really the $64,000 question that kind of arises out of this text. How is it that we can walk in the freedom of the gospel? And to do that, I want to simply look at verses 5 and 6 with you from this text. Because I believe mean, this is really the linchpin. And I want to think about these two verses in two categories. I want to think about waiting faith, and I want to think about working faith. Waiting faith and working faith. Because he says these are the two. This is what it's like if you're going to stand firm in the gospel and not submit again to a yoke of slavery, you're going to have to learn to have a waiting faith and a working faith. Notice verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now this is really important because the false teachers who came into Galatia, who the Apostle Paul says, He'd just like them to emasculate themselves. Not the kindest moment in Paul's writing. But it just tells you the strength by which the Apostle Paul is so disturbed by the heresy that this church has now come under the influence of and he sees their freedom being robbed. He is, if you can see it, it's a little earthy. He's using a circumcision image and carrying it over. He's saying this law that they're putting in place leads to really terrible places. 
and I'd wish they'd go ahead and destroy themselves. The Apostle Paul sees this as so damaging, he wants to see them standing in the freedom of this faith. And so he says, I want you to know that you wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. Now, he doesn't mean that you're waiting by killing time. He means a particular kind of wait. In fact, there's a three-pronged waiting that he gives us here in verse 5. He says, a waiting faith is one that's hopeful, it's one that's eager, and it's one that's dependent. It's hopeful, it's eager, and it's dependent. Look at the hope first. He says it's a hope of righteousness. It's a hope of righteousness. He says our saving faith, our waiting faith, what it sees when it looks out and what it longs for as it considers the future is the day in which we will be fully made righteous and we will possess what is now simply given to us in declaration. We've been declared righteous, but are you righteous? Don't answer yes. No. You, you will one day be righteous, but that day is in the future. You have a hope for that day. What he's saying is when you have a waiting faith that's trusting in the future righteousness, you don't pretend as if you possess it now, as if the church at Galatia was probably falling into, and the false teachers were probably teaching some kind of perfectionism. You could work to become righteous. He says, no, we wait for a righteousness. We look with the IFA for a righteousness that is going to be revealed, which by its very nature puts us in a humble position. If you think you can work for your righteousness, work to become righteous, then you are placing the onus upon yourself rather than upon God. What he is saying here is we wait for our righteousness because it is going to be revealed when Jesus comes back, which means humility, grace, it's a gift. Now, when you are waiting, you're, you're by very definition hopeful. It's the nature of the way waiting works. Christy and I were on a date Friday night. It was our 16th anniversary. It was a great time. We did not, however, make reservations to go anywhere. And so we struck out at 6 o'clock to go to a Franklin restaurant on Friday night. You know what that means? We waited. Okay, now we wait. Now, why did we wait? We waited with eagerness and excitement, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But why did we wait? We waited because we hoped for food. There was an end to the waiting. If, if we had gone and put in our name at the restaurant and we said, yeah, we'd just like to wait, and they go, we have no food tonight. Oh, we'll just continue to wait. That's fine. That's fine. We'll just hang out. They would have looked at us very curiously. They say, no, this is your time to leave and go find food somewhere else. You, you wait, by its very definition, is hoping in the fulfillment of that which you wait for. He says, we wait for righteousness, which means, friends, if you feel the pain of not being righteous, and you feel the struggle of seeking to follow Christ and constantly fall and need grace, the default is not to go back to slavish law so you can feel good about how you're, what you're doing. Or to give up and say, it's no use, I'm not changing. It's instead to look to the future. To the moment where you will be utterly perfect and possess it completely. This is what I love about older saints in the faith. Is they've lived so long, they know they're not going to ever get it and figure out life. And so they just go, I just can't wait for heaven to be with Christ. I just, you know, 
They just, they're just surrendered. It's like, I'm just a mess still, I'm, you know, 80, 90 years old. I'm still just trying to figure it out and, you know. I mean, hope for righteousness. The recognition is we never expected, did we, that we were going to be fully righteous here. You don't strive for righteousness by works. You wait for righteousness in hope. He says, that's how you stand in the freedom of the gospel. You feel how freeing that is? That's standing in the freedom of the gospel. So some of us need to hear perfect righteousness is not going to happen here. So if you thought you were supposed to be further along, well, you were, but you're not. Jesus died for that. He's going to make it better. This hope is a certain one. It's completely certain. It's not the kind of hope we have. Like, oh, I hope it'll be nice this afternoon, but I'm not really sure. No, it's a certain hope. It's as good as done. God has promised it. There's a certainty to the fact of Jesus' return and our perfection and righteousness. And so the question is, if you are not experiencing the freedom of the gospel, do you have your heart actually set on the hope of righteousness in the future? It could be that you're slavishly trying to earn it here or you've completely given up on it and are now living any old way you want to, experiencing discontentment, lack of joy, insecurity, anxiety, rather than setting your sights on the hope of the righteousness that is being revealed and experience the freedom of his grace as he takes you there. This waiting faith is hopeful, but secondly, it's eager. It's eager. I love the wisdom of the Apostle Paul here. He doesn't allow us to get lazy. Some of you hear wait, and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> wait, I don't have to do anything. No, that's not what the Apostle Paul's saying. Because we'd be tempted that way, wouldn't we? Uh, righteousness is yours in Jesus. It's certain. Take it to the bank. Kick back. Get a drink with a little umbrella in it. Be done. Call it a day. No, sir. The certainty of this hope, he says, leads to an eagerness in the waiting. An eagerness in the waiting. This is not feet up on the couch. This is standing on the tippy toes, leaning into the righteousness that will be revealed. Because I'm headed there, I want to stretch out towards it. It's like a runner who's running in the tape, and as he gets to the finish line, as he sees the finish line, does he just kind of go, oh, I see it. Just going to walk the rest of the way. I think I'll take a nap. No, no. what does he do? He presses in further as he leans into the tape. There's an eager stretching that comes out to it. There's an expectancy that's in the nature of this freedom. My boys were, well, not sleeping the other night. It's not an unusual experience at the certain home. They were not sleeping, but next day they were headed to uh, Granny and Papa's house. And uh, they were very excited about this. We go in there to check on them because we could hear the pitter-patter of feet on the second floor. We get up there, open the door. Like all the sheets are off the cover, off, off the bed. Like all of them. We didn't even know how it happened. They don't even know how it happened. Um, no, you know, things are everywhere all over the room. I was like, boys, you have got to get some rest. You, you are going, you, you're getting up early and you've got to go to Granny and Papa's tomorrow. I know we're so excited. Right, that's why we're not sleeping and there's no covers on our bed, right? There is something of that in the eagerness that's being described here in this passage. If you could, if you could bottle up the expectancy and the energy of that moment. He says, this, this is the, the feel, the experience of the gravitational pull of the soul that is hoping for righteousness to be revealed is that we would stretch out towards it with eager expectation, 
Now, if you can see that and you feel the freedom, it's not being pulled here, it's not being pulled there, it's stretching out towards the direction in which it's called because it's got the face of a beloved Savior who's perfectly righteous that you can't wait to be in communion with. And there's nothing more that you want in life than to be holy as He is holy and to see His glory. Be captured in the midst of that freedom is what we're describing. Now, here's a question. You know, how does that happen? He says, you've got to be dependent. Hopeful, eager, dependent. Because some of us will go, yeah, hope, eager. I'm going to go get it. It's a gift of the Spirit. Through the Spirit, by faith, you hope for the righteousness that is to come through the Spirit. You know what that means? This is really important. It means it's not, an, it's not a technique. It's not a talent. It's not a personality trait. You will see people who are eagerly longing for righteousness, but they don't get excited like Nate does. He talks about it. You know, this is a personality. It's the morphology of who I am. Okay. That doesn't necessarily, emotion is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who is directed and committed and stretching out in eagerness because they're dependent on the Spirit. That might be very calm, very staid. It might be very steady. It's going to look in the expression of who it is that the Lord has made you to be. It's not a form. I want you to say it's not a technique. It's not a trait. It's not a talent. It's not a method. What it means is if you're struggling to see the righteousness and to hope for the face of Jesus as the ultimate end for which you live and take your next breath, if you struggle in doing that, and then in the struggle you decide, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to somehow get that perspective. You won't get it by doing it that way. You need to pray and to plead with the Lord to give it to you. You've got to plead with him to give it to you. Because there is no working you could do to conjure it. It's not that thing. It's not the kind of thing you muster. It's the kind of thing that's given by God himself. You must seek him for the gift. Prayerfully pleading that the Holy Spirit would awaken your eyes to the righteousness that is to be revealed. To give to you the eagerness in the direction towards that righteousness that's receptive do the work of the Spirit that's humble, knowing that we cannot bring it about. So often when we're eager in our hope for righteousness, we're seeking in some way, shape, or form to make ourselves righteous. And I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to do good, and then I'm going to be righteous. It's not that kind of thing. Yes, read your Bible and do good. But there are many people who read their Bible and do good out of pride. There's many people who read their Bible and do good out of guilt. You can read your Bible and do good all kinds of things and be far from the Lord. The dependence on the Spirit is becoming the beloved and seeing the joy of who Christ is and what he's making you to be and stopping at nothing to plead with him to give it. That's what it is. That's the spirit of it. And so as we're walking through these distinctions, you should be testing your, your slaveries. Where are they? How are they manifesting themselves? Where's the missing hope? Where's the missing eagerness? Where's the dependence? Are we resting in the Spirit and His control over our righteousness and the impartation of that righteousness? 
that will be revealed. Now, here's where the Apostle Paul, in conclusion, he says, if you're waiting in this way, sight set on the righteousness, eager in your movement towards it, dependent on the Spirit, absolutely humble for the Lord to do that work, you know what kind of faith begins to manifest itself? Waiting faith to working faith. A real work. A gospel work. A spirit-dependent work. A work that flows out of faith. A work that's, that's there with love. With grace that's self-forgetful. That's other-centered. That prizes Christ more than our reputation. That, that looks at people's needs not in what you can get from it, but in terms of what you can do for them. A kind of... A kind of love that is genuinely lost in the grace and the glory of who Jesus is. That you don't even know who you are apart from him. You don't even have a sense of it. He says, this is what begins to happen when you're waiting in this way. Look at verse 6. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Basically what the Apostle Paul is saying here, if you're circumcised or you're not circumcised, it doesn't matter. It's not the deal. Here's the deal. Only faith working through love. He clarifies it, deepens it. Verse 14, the law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. As saving faith waits in the hope of righteousness with eagerness, dependent on the Spirit, that faith begins to fill up and spill over into the necessary works of love and good deeds. It begins to be the very heart of the believer, the formation of our lives. Think of it this way. If you have got your heart set on righteousness, and righteousness is the perfection of Jesus, Jesus is constantly sacrificing himself in full love for his neighbor. It was the very reason by which he came in the gospel to redeem us. If we've got our hearts set there, how can we not also, as we are filled up in grace, begin to spill over in love and good deeds for one another because that's the very spirit of our Savior. It's the very spirit of our Savior. At the very foundation, we begin to be a people having waited on the Lord with hope, eagerness, and dependence. We become a working faith who's looking for a way to express Christ's love to another. Martin Luther put it great in his commentary. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord, subject to no one. And he is a perfectly dutiful servant, subject to everyone. He's both of these things. Because he is free, subject to no one, he willingly submits himself to be subject to everyone. He sees it as a free offer of his heart and his life. This is why in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the Apostle Paul says, For by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the woefully neglected, verse 10, For we are his workmanship. He's made us, he's created us, he's worked us. And what are we, what's he worked us to be? Created in Christ for good works. That's why he made us. He made us for that purpose. And so as you begin to identify the slaveries that are there, the pathway by which gospel freedom is extended, what you want to experience is what Charles Wesley experienced. And what he writes about in his beautiful hymn, when he says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke 
the dungeon flamed with light. Notice, my chains fell off. Slavery's gone. My heart is set free. I rose, went forth, and did whatever it is I want to do. And followed thee. Willingly served thee. In whatever you would call me unto. I rose, went forth. Totally free. Not guilted, not manipulated. Free in Christ. How? Free unto the righteousness, free unto the followership of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you're walking in gospel freedom, you begin to freely become the servant of all. Because Jesus, who was most free, most powerful, and most authoritative, came to the earth, subjected himself, and became the servant of all, and came servant even unto death, even death on the cross, the apostle Paul tells us in Philippians. If our heart is set there, how can we not do likewise? How can we not pursue him in the freedom of that call? Experience the comfort of the gospel. Answer the call of the gospel. Until the fullness of that gospel has taken hold of the fullness of you. And that will come when you and I see Jesus all together one day. And I pray very soon. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would indeed confirm these truths to the degree that each heart in this room needs to hear them and believe them. We entrust that work to your spirit and we ask now for his grace as we continue in our worship of you freely, joyfully, worshiping in service to you. Come and meet us by the spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.